Bienvenidos and welcome to Crónicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles, a weekly program produced by Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznid, and Vanessa Bohm. On tonight's program, you'll hear about art dedicated to Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, and you'll get more information about local Dia de los Muertos event celebrations. We'll also bring you an in-depth interview with medium Lara Malloy, who will talk to us about a new Hesperian book called The Worker's Guide to Health and Safety. We'll bring you an interview on a victory that was had today around immigrant rights. All this and much more. We'll even have a ticket giveaway. Stay tuned. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. And on our program, as you all know, we focus on issues facing the world, facing America Latina, the Latino community here in the Bay. And we're going to spend some time talking about an issue that affects people all over the world. And we're going to get to talk about a really important, useful, beautiful tool that has been created to help support people as they face dangerous working conditions, offering them support to address everything from practical tips to thinking about how to get organized. And to talk about that, we have Miriam Lara Malloy here with us. She works at Hesperian Press that a lot of people know and love. And she's going to talk to us about this wonderful publication that just came out. It's called Worker's Guide to Health and Safety. Thank you so much, Miriam, for being here. Thank you, Julieta, for inviting me. And, and thank you, everybody, for listening to this wonderful La Raza episode. This is something that I know did not happen overnight. You invested so many hours and years, actually, into making this book a reality. And I know you did that in part because the issue of workplace safety and worker safety is a, a crucial one for you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why you are so drawn to this? Yeah. Well, I am from a small town in Mexico called Tehuacan, Puebla. And in the 90s, Tehuacan became the gene capital of the world. That's where they were producing genes for basically every company, every brand out there. And what this does to a small community like Tehuacan when suddenly there's an enormous amount of manufacturer and production is both positive and negative. The positive, of course, is that people who didn't have a lot of education were able to get jobs, stable jobs, you know, allowed them their kids to go to school. So that was a really positive thing about this enormous boom of production in Tehuacan. But with, as you can imagine, any enormous amount of production happening in the world, the effects also were visible in occupational health concerns, in environmental health concerns. I mean, for example, Tehuacan, you would see it in the fields that were irrigating produce that we were consuming. The water that would come out was blue, the same color of the genes that were being produced in the maquilas. And so there was an enormous amount of work and response from community groups. And my family belonged to a lot of human rights groups that have been working on different aspects of human rights, seeing human rights from both a health perspective and a rights perspective and a labor perspective. And so we had been participating and supporting different parts of that work. And so when, you know, people started organizing and people started to acknowledge that their families had rashes that no one could explain or people couldn't breathe because they were exposed to some of the threads of the genes or, you know, their hands became numb from doing the same motion over and over again. So as people got organized, I got to participate with some of the organizing that they did and and yet sort of see this connection between labor and health and prosperity and occupational health and environmental health and sort of how it all combines for people who work in this enormous processing areas, processing zones around the world. So it became a very important issue for me also because as a middle class Mexican, I had both people who were my friends who were workers in the maquilas and I had friends who were maquila owners. And so it, it brought this perspective of how we can work to create change in those environments. 
That's the voice of Miriam Lara Meloy, and she is speaking to us about the Worker's Guide to Health and Safety book. She's telling us about how she got invested and committed to this important issue. And this book, it's got a lot, it's <laughs> thick, it's, um, it offers a lot of resources information, and it's something that I know was not just invented in an office in Berkeley where a p- couple people were just thinking and just brainstorming. It was something that took a lot of collaboration, a lot of connections with people all over the world. Why don't you tell us about some of the stories people can read about in the book, as well as some of the connections you all made to really make sure that this is serving those that you hoped? Yeah. Let me start by sort of explaining why this book came about. Hesperian publishes general health materials. And at the time that this book came about, we were already writing about work as a perspective of health. I mean, the the impact that work has on our health is enormous. I mean, we work eight hours or more a day. It's a huge impact on our health. And so Hesperian had already been including work health in their perspective of, of health. And at the same time in the in the late 90s and 2000s, when suddenly what was happening across the world in factories manufacturing our products, like Nike in Indonesia, and well, now we have Apple in China. I mean, we started to see that there was conditions that we as people would not agree to purchase products from those places if we knew that they were using child labor or treating their workers badly or forcing them to stay in the workplace for hours on end. So that was happening. And many of the partners here in California and in in the U.S. who were supporting workers realized that they needed a material that was easy to adapt, easy to translate, and easy for workers to understand and use in their organizing. And then finally, people were using our other materials, like where women have no doctor, to train women workers, for example. Workers were coming with concerns about general health that weren't really part of the perspective of occupational health. So when Hesperian started deciding that this was going to be a a project that we were going to work on, we reached out to all of our partners, a variety of partners that we had in China and in Mexico and other parts of Asia. And to really understand, I mean, what kind of perspectives we needed to include in this books. I mean, Hesperian prides itself in in having a very general perspective and then reaching out and fulfilling the spaces of, you know, what we don't know with experts from all over the world. So this book, for example, Workers' Guide to Health and Safety, was reviewed by 40 partners in 25 countries. And they're grassroots partners. So, I mean, in, in a way, Workers' Guide to Health and Safety really responds to the both the questions that people have, the knowledge and experience that they have, for example, a campaign that's very successful in one place, like in Indonesia. What can we learn and what can we share for other people? experiencing similar problems. And so, I mean, we've had a really great opportunity to to see the transition of workplaces, like from the beginning in Mexico and Central America to China and now to Vietnam. Vietnam is becoming a big, important processing area. So I have a lot of stories to tell, but some of the ones that are really impactful for me are, in Asia, a concept that's very important is this concept of victims organizing. So people who have suffered or people who have been injured in the workplace getting together and then trying to change the conditions that hurt them in the first place. So, I mean, one story that really always touches me, a woman who was exposed to asbestos, not as a worker, but as a community member and who developed mesothelioma, but then joined all the efforts that people were doing to ban asbestos in a, in a broad sense. Countries should ban asbestos, but also to protect workers in the workplaces. So really spanning this concept of like the community, the environment, the workplace, all working together for one purpose. And unfortunately, Rachel, Rachel Lee was her name. She, she passed away four years ago. But that's one of the stories of people really sort of really seeing that if it's affecting the community, it's, it's definitely affecting the workers. And, and vice versa. So another campaign that we are kind of active in right now and or have been active is all the efforts that are going into supporting workers and unions in Bangladesh. As you know, two years ago, the Rana Plaza collapsed and killing more than 1,100 workers and injuring many, many more. And what happened after that was sort of this immediate international response that said, this cannot happen again. We cannot continue to build workplaces and sustain workplaces that harm workers. And so 
Hesperian has joined other voices of uh, organizations here in California to work with community and occupational health organizations in Bangladesh to create what's called a worker academy. So the idea of empowering workers to learn about occupational health and safety. And that's what we do with this. I mean, Worker's Guide is meant for that. Worker's Guide is, to, is meant as a tool for workers and for organizers to learn about occupational health and safety and learn how to organize around those issues and expand the vision of occupational health and safety to include labor and health and gender and power because they are inseparable. So, I mean, we had a really great opportunity to really include the perspectives from workers from all around the world. That's the voice of Medium Lara Malloy, and she is with Hesperian Press and worked very long and hard on the Worker's Guide to Health and Safety, which has just come out, and people can find out more on Hesperian's website. So, Miriam, you just mentioned the issue of gender, and we know that in terms of workplace safety, there are issues and concerns that specifically affect women more so, that women are more impacted by. Can you tell us a little bit about some story or case study about how women have worked to make their workplaces safer. Yeah, I mean, the the issue of gender is really pervasive. And it's important to talk about gender, you know, for many of us in English and in Spanish, the word worker often makes us think of male, right? So there's a lot of work done with this perspective, even though, for example, in manufacturing, it's 80% women. And that means that concerns about women, for example, about sexual harassment, about access to safe water and toilets, about safety when they leave the workplace, and about wages are really important. Actually, when we were developing this book, we thought about creating a chapter just for women workers. And we soon realized when we sent this material to do field tests, was that there was not a single issue in this book from, you know, work hazards like chemicals and ergonomics to social hazards like long hours and access to food, for example, that were not relevant and needed to be specified for women. So we made a big effort to include women and women's issues really organically through the entire book. Some of the organizing that we have seen, of course, is, for example, around toilets. I mean, women need (laughs) more toilets than men, need access to clean water, need access to places where they can dispose, for example, their sanitary products. And also the question about UTIs, you know, if women are not allowed to drink water, and not allowed to go to the bathroom, which is, I mean, is a concern in export processing factories that people don't have really free access to toilets. So those are some of the concerns that people have. Of course, the other question is chemicals. I mean, we if we think about production of garment and shoes and electronics, I mean, we're talking about a lot of different chemicals and some of them that are known to cause reproductive health problems. And for example, in electronics, chemicals that are used, for, were used in Korea, for example, Women were facing irregular periods, miscarriages, and no one knew what to do about it because there is not enough information about uh, what they were exposed to. So I think it's really important and really useful to bring this gender perspective into our understanding about workplaces and to realize that, again, like as I said, there is not a single issue that, that doesn't require a gender lens from chemicals and machine injuries to again, wages and time off. And of course, I mean, we, we're talking about women workers. Uh, we can't ignore the the idea that a lot of women workers work full-time in the workplace and then work full-time at home. And so that leaves very little room to do organizing and to participate actively in any efforts to improve conditions. So an important aspect of improving conditions for women is having spaces for them to participate actively in, in union building or in worker centers or other types of organizing. As you mentioned, there are so many different areas in which workers are fighting to create a better place for them to really be able to be treated as full human beings, and that extends in a lot of different directions. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about some of the dangers in terms of, well, when workers are asking and organizing for rights, what are some of the possible uh, repercussions and what are the things that workers are, are facing and how do you deal with that in your book? Because in the book, Hesperian's book, Workers Guide to Health and Safety, there are a lot of recommendations that, that involve educating your colleagues and your coworkers and also making demands. And how do you deal with the question that this may or may not be 
dangerous depending on the situation. One of our partners said to us something about how important it was that this material really included those power dynamics. Organizing is not happening in a vacuum. And so it was very important for us to acknowledge that this sort of spectrum from what you can do on a very specific individual way building up to what you can do on a community level. So, for example, we have, like, if your chair is hurting you, we have an activity, a very small how-to activity about how to improve that chair for yourself. And then it includes how to talk to other workers and ask them about what they're experiencing and building a common consensus about it as a problem. And then how to demand from your employer that something changed, that getting a better chair based on information that's included in the book. And then moving, I mean, again, forward and further into launching a campaign to getting better chairs for the entire factory. So, I mean, it really is acknowledging where people are. I mean, more people are going to come to our materials. They might be people who are not interested in organizing in any way, but acknowledge that they're experiencing problems. And we need to offer them tools as well. And we've actually done this with all of our materials. One of the perspectives of our flagship book, Where There Is No Doctor, is the idea that you offer treatment for people's problems first, and then you talk about prevention. And that is a similar model that we have in this book. The idea is that people are already experiencing the problems, and we need to offer those tools then, acknowledging that there is a huge range of power dynamics. And most likely, employer goodwill is not something that we can rely on or we can state as a, as a constant throughout the world. So uh, building towards more community organizing, really sustaining into like what are the rights that workers have internationally and using those to build momentum around people's own campaigns. So, I mean, I think that what people are facing right now is a range of situations that, I mean, as I said, like the biggest concerns right now are in occupational health, our chemicals, our ergonomics, in Bangladesh are a safety around fire and building safety. But I mean, all these questions also about how fast the line works and how little control people have over their workplaces and and yeah, sexual harassment. And I mean, there's already people being exposed to chemicals inside and then double exposed when they go outside in their community. So it's a, there's just a range. The whole point of this book is to offer a range of, of solutions and a visualization of these problems. But people at the end of the day are the ones that will decide what are the issues that are most important to them. And we'll find that for many, sometimes wages are the most important and the most present problem that people are facing, wages and wage theft, which is um, a concern across the world. Medium Lara Malloy, you work with Hesperian, and this book is just one of a series that really offers very practical, useful tools. It also offers a lot of contact. It's so deeply connected to community groups around the world that are working on different health issues. Can you tell us about Hesperian and how people can access the many resources and also support the work that you're doing? So Hesperian has been developing popular education health materials for over 40 years. And we focus on creating materials that demystify information, validate people's experiences, build on already their experience and their knowledge, and, and focus on, on participation. So we have a whole range of materials from general health, women's health, disability issues, environmental health, and our newest title, Workers' Guide to Health and Safety, which brings forward the issues in the workplace. Really focused in the last couple of years in making our materials more accessible digitally, as uh, that is more and more something that's happening around the world. So. If you go to our website, hesperian.org, you can find all of our materials in English and in Spanish. We also have some materials and links to some free downloadable materials in other languages. But, you know, we at the end of the day also sell our books and we really encourage people to go to our website and if they are interested in purchasing books, to purchase them from us rather than from, say, a big online retailer because... 
Uh, in that way, you're supporting our work doubly. For example, for every 10 books that we sell from Hesperian, we can ship two free books entirely free to community organizations around the world. Uh, Workers Guide to Health and Safety already got uh, a request for free books uh, for India. So we're really excited to get more of those out the door. And, and again, only if it gets into the hands of the people that need it and will use it and will share it. And so we strive to make that information available as openly as possible. Through this book, you can really get a sense of what people are dealing with on the ground. You have little stories where, you know, very well illustrated and it's laid out in a beautiful way that's very accessible. Stories that you all heard from directly from community groups making a difference. Can you share with us some way that a community group you worked with um, ha- addressed the health hazards they were facing in their workplace and how you then took that information and then put it in the book. You know, there's a whole section on noise and many of us don't realize that, of course, that could be a really consistent issue if you're in a workplace that's very, very loud. Uh, one of our groups in, in Mexico, in central Mexico, that goes by the name Insumisas, they they didn't have a lot of understanding about the chemicals that were used in garment factories, but they got a lot of people talking to them about rashes and uh, skin that didn't heal very well. So when we approached them and we were talking about field testing a certain different range of sections, they were really interested in the section on chemicals and how to understand chemicals and how to help workers understand chemicals and then what to do to improve conditions when changing a chemical is actually one of the hardest things that a worker can push for. But one thing that they were able to to learn and we were able to learn together was really thinking about how workers thought about chemicals. So for a long time, we thought there was a big effort in like calling chemicals by the right name or finding out what the actual chemical was. But for many workers, they thought about the chemicals in ways of like how they use them or what they smell like or what they look like. And so we really incorporated that perspective into, into our materials because the truth is for many workers around the world, not only is it that they don't know what the chemicals are, the information is in a language that's not theirs. The great divide between like what is the law in terms of chemicals and what workers experience is enormous. And so we were able to include that perspective into, into our resource. And then through our work together, we were able to make a list of some of the important chemicals that people were exposed to, like potassium permanganate or um, some of the cleaning chemicals used at the end of making a garment when the people are spot cleaning. So we made this list and then we shared this list with some of our partners who then helped us understand the exposure to these chemicals, like what would they cause, etc. And then we shared that list back with them. So that was one activity in which we learned a lot from them to really understand how workers experience chemicals. But they also learned a lot about what they were being exposed to. Miriam Lara Malloy, can you tell us again Hesperian's website and contact information? Our website is hesperian.org. We are located in Berkeley. And the easiest way to reach us is to go to our website or email us at hesperian at hesperian.org. And you can reach me personally at miriam at hesperian.org.
Listen up, La Raza Chronicles listeners. It's time for our ticket giveaway. Jaff Productions presents an exciting and powerful performance with two of Latin America's favorite bands, Bomba Estéreo and Nortec Collective, will be performing together in the Bay Area Thursday, October 29th at 7 p.m. at the Regency Ballroom in San Francisco. We'll be giving away a pair of tickets to callers number six. The number to call is area code 510-848-4425. Again, the number is 510-848-4425. That's a pair of tickets to the Six Caller to see Bomba Estéreo and Nortec Collective at the Regency Ballroom on Thursday, October 29th at 7 p.m. Good luck! This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I have on the phone Adrián Arias, poet, performance artist, visual artist, and curator. And he's going to be talking to us about the new exhibit that he's put together for Día de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. Bienvenidos, Adrián Arias. Thank you, Nina. Yes, I'm ready for my next exhibition. I'm curating a Day of the Dead show at Studio Grand in Oakland, and the name is Altar para mi Muerte, Altar of My Passing, and it's a multidisciplinary vision of our own passing. I ask 21 artists to work with the idea of their own passing, because traditionally, a Day of the Dead, a celebration, is to celebrate 
the passing of our family, community, friends. But in this case, I ask this amazing and multidisciplinary group to play with the idea of being there. You ask the artists to make altars about their own deaths? Yes. Um, at the beginning, some artists, two or three artists, they don't like a lot the idea because it's kind of bad luck or mala suerte, I don't know. But little by little, I convinced some artists and other artists are very happy to participate and create an altar box with images, objects, photographs, etc., talking about their own death. And the result is amazing. I have 21 boxes from painters, photographers, singers, dancers, journalists, graphic designers, filmmakers, graffiti and muralist artists, all kind of art representing death, but they own death in a little box. And this will be a program, and the opening is this Sunday. What time? On Sunday, October 25th, will be open at 5.11 until 9 p.m., and we will have a series of performances at 6.30. We will have Eddie Madrid, that is a Native American dancer, Amy Lacour, that is a singer and composer, Jessica Brown, that is a modern dance, a dancer, Bob Marsh playing cello, and also he is an inventor of instruments, a luthier, and his altar is also an instrument. And, and also I will have some poetry by myself. So where will this take place on October 25th? Yeah, October 25th in Studio Grand, that is in Grand Avenue, 3234 Grand Avenue in Auckland. It's very close to the Grand Lake Theater, close to the Lake Mary area, you know. And what are it's, the hours? The performances start at 6.30, but we will be open around 5, 5.11, 5.13. It will be a, a celebration with all the artists. We have all kinds of artists, youth artists. We have 3D artists like René Yanez, a 3D box that you need to use special glasses, and we have a lot. And we have photographers and painters. In, in our artists, we have Silvia Polotto, Susan Matthews, Pancho Pescador, Nancy Home, and Indira Urrutia, Chelis Lopez, Danica Conilli, and Amy Lacura Meclit Adero, they are singers, composers, they also make an altar. And Amy created a song, a special song for her own dad, and she will be singing that song on Sunday. And are there other days and times when people can see this exhibit? Well, the exhibit will be open until November 28th. Um, the best time to, to go to Studio Grand is during the afternoon, because the Studio Grand is open after 5 p.m. until almost midnight. But in the night, from Wednesday to Saturday, they have different kind of shows. But you can go and see the, the exhibit. Studio Grand is a space of art that is usually have performances, music performances, dances, classes, and also this gallery that is part of the space. And we have a closing reception on November 28th, that is um, Saturday, at 8 p.m., with performances with Meklit Hadero at 9 p.m. Well, this sounds very exciting. One is Sunday the 25th, the opening that starts at 5, with performances at 6.30. The closing is Saturday, and... On Saturday, November 28th, starts at 8 p.m. Uh, on Saturday, the open, opening uh, at Studio Grand Grand Lake, late until... 11 p.m. or midnight. It will closing ceremonies November 28th, and that'll be at 8 in the evening. So there'll be plenty of time to get to see this exciting exhibit where artists respond to their own deaths. Thank you so much, Adrian Arias.
the Mission Cultural Center, the bones of our ancestors' endurance and survival beyond Sierra's missions has already opened. The gallery hours are Tuesday through Saturday, 10 till 5 p.m., and the exhibit is open until November 20th. There's an opening reception November 2nd from 6 p.m. till 11 p.m., where they will serve hot chocolate and pan de muerto. The exhibit is a protest of Junipero Serra's canonization. This exhibition gives voice and makes visible the legacy of the native people during the destructive effects of the mission system from the 18th and 19th century. Also, the Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts is proud to announce that in honor of the Day of the Dead, they will be screening the trailer for a documentary, Searching for Posada, Art and Revolutions, by award-winning director Victor Mancillo, plus two short clips from the director's New Dia de los Muertos film, currently in production. The full film, Searching for Posada, Art and Revolution, will screen on Friday, November 20th, when the director and producers will be available for questions and answers. That's the Mission Cultural Center in San Francisco by the 24th and Mission BART station. At Soma Arts, the annual Day of the Dead exhibition has already begun, and it will be ending around the time of the holiday itself. It is curated by Rene Yanez and Rio Yanez, with the assistance from architect Nick Gomez. The event features work by more than 70 artists. This year's Day of the Dead exhibit, The Shadow of Tomorrow, will be on view until November 7th. The opening event has already passed, but you can see Gathering the Embers, another event that they will hold on October 23rd, Friday, from 7 to 9.30 p.m., and you'll see multidisciplinary performers connect past and present with an evening of story and performance. And at the Oakland Museum of California, the Dia de los Muertos exhibit is called Rituals and Remembrances. The exhibit will be open during the Friday night events at the museum, featuring good food trucks, live music, and more. The museum is located at 1000 Oak Street at 10th in Oakland by the 12th Street Oakland BART station. This has been a roundup of Dia de los Muertos events. You can learn about more events on our Facebook page, La Raza Chronicles. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I have on the line with me Larisa Dugan Cuadra. She is the executive director of CARECEN, the Central American Resource Center in San Francisco. And we have her on the line because this is a very exciting time for them. They are honoring Monsignor Romero. And there's a big event happening this Thursday. And they're going to celebrate Monsignor in a lot of different ways. And one of which is by inviting an important organization here to the Bay Area to have people better understand their work. Larissa, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Julieta. Thank you for having us. Larissa, it's always a pleasure to have you on and to have Carecen's voice on our airways. Why don't you start off by telling people a little bit about Romero Vive? So for people who don't know, who was Monsignor Romero and why has Carecen decided to honor him year after year? Monsignor Oscar Romero, who is now San Romero, is essentially embodies everything that Carecen aspires to. He was the voice of those most marginalized by dictatorships and government in Central America, and he represents the ultimate sacrifice. As many people may know, um, many may not know, he was murdered while giving mass in El Salvador 35 years ago, and since he has become the symbol of liberation for the people of El Salvador. We're very proud that we were founded in 1986 by Salvadorian refugees. And since, Carecen has looked up to Monsignor Romero as the greatest symbol of people who fight for social justice. We have been guided by his word, by his actions. He's our, our mission. Our mission is to speak on behalf of those who are voiceless. And in this case, in the United States, where the immigrant population, the immigrant community, particularly undocumented immigrants, 
are not allowed to vote to make their priorities and their needs heard. So President's job is to represent them, to advocate on their behalf, and to work side by side with them to ultimately achieve comprehensive immigration reform. This country has a very outdated, irrelevant immigration system that is creating massive family separation in this nation. There's 11 million undocumented individuals in this country. And to this day, the system is harmful to innocent, honest, hardworking immigrants who are fleeing violence, poverty, and in many cases seeking family reunification with their families here in the United States. So Larissa, Carecen has decided to highlight the work of a very important organization doing work in Central America right now. Can you tell us about that organization and a little bit about what will be happening this Thursday? Yes, so this Thursday, October 22nd, from 6 to 9, Carecen will be holding our annual Romero Viva celebration. Every year, we honor advocates and individuals who represent the struggle for social justice, who act to advance the rights of immigrants in this country. And so we are going to be honoring Asida Arcoiris. The name in Spanish is Asociación Solidaria para Impulsar el Desarrollo Humano, Solidarity Movement to Advance Human Development. They're a transgender human rights group in El Salvador that we, over our years of traveling to Central America, have had the opportunity to get to know. And we learned through the past few years that essentially they're the only ones in El Salvador advocating for transgender rights. To this day, there's not been a single hate crime documented by the national police as a hate crime. So what they do is they document all these crimes and they provide support and services to victims of hate crimes. And they provide a series of other services, including support groups. They provide health screenings. They advocate to get women who've been detained out of jail, unfairly detained, solely on the basis of their gender. And they work with little to no money. This is a a community-based group, completely grassroots. And many of us know that our countries are still light years behind in terms of overall human rights, let alone the LGBT community. So uh, we've been very impressed by their work. We've been very moved by the fact that some of their leaders have been murdered. Most recently in January, one of their founders was murdered. And we know that this is because they're resisting and they're denouncing the violence that they're experiencing in their country. So we're very happy to be able to honor them, to bring them to San Francisco and to build bridges and connect peoples across borders. And so uh, they'll be with us in the Bay Area for 10 days, and we're going to be touring various locations and programs. They're going to be meeting with local advocates for both immigrant rights as well as transgender rights. And we're very excited to support uh, transnational dialogue so that people in the United States can become more aware of the challenges that this community is facing in their countries of origin. And that's much like the work that Carecen's doing day in, day out. So I understand that this Thursday, the Romero Viva event, along with being a celebration, is also an opportunity to keep Carecen going, to really energize Carecen and is a benefit. So why don't you give us a little bit more information about some of the things that Carecen's working on right now and how the event will help support that work. So today is a a historical day in San Francisco, another one of those great days where you feel so proud of being a San Franciscan, so proud of being in the Bay Area. As you know, the recent media coverage of the Stanley murder that we know, based on evidence, was a ricochet bullet. It was an accidental murder by an undocumented immigrant who was released because he did not have any aggravated felony charges that would merit him being detained based on our local laws. That created a whole kind of perfect storm, reinforcing some of Donald Trump's hate speech towards Latinos, particularly Mexicans. And it, to some degree, kind of made San Francisco waver a little bit on the importance of our sanctuary city. Supervisor Farrell introduced a resolution that would give discretion to our local sheriff to collaborate with ICE. This was highly problematic for us because we feel that there needs to be a very clear separation between local law enforcement and the federal government's Homeland Security ISIS program. In addition to that, Supervisor Campos, Avalos, and Mar, who have been great champions of the immigrant community, introduced a counter-resolution that essentially stated that San Francisco should opt out of ICE's Priority Enforcement Program, also known as PEPCOM, which is kind of like the 2.0 version of ESCOM, which a few years ago San Francisco unanimously voted to not collaborate with. 
we were worried today that we might not have enough votes because we noticed that many of the supervisors were kind of succumbing to the media pressure and to the misframing of this unfortunate tragedy with Kate Stanley. So we were very proud to see that once again, community coming together, community organizing and community advocacy once again stands on the right side of things. And to our incredibly pleasant surprise, we were able to motivate the Board of Supervisors to achieve a unanimous vote on San Francisco opting out of PIP. This is a resolution. It's non-binding. It's not an ordinance that becomes law, but it's a very important first step, not only for San Francisco and the Bay Area, but for the nation, as San Francisco has always been a leader in protecting immigrant rights. It's not just about immigrants. It's also about public safety. In any city where immigrants feel afraid to report crimes or crimes that they've witnessed or crimes that they have been victims of is a city where public safety will be compromised. So this is not just a victory for the immigrant community, but it's also a victory for our city. It's a victory that's going to ensure that San Francisco continues to be a safe city for everyone and a city where immigrants don't have to fear our local law enforcement. So I just want to put out a shout out to the Free SF Coalition, which really kind of led this charge. Cutters is a member of this coalition, as well as many other highly reputable direct service organizations that have been doing this work for decades. And so big shout outs and kudos to Free SF and all the brave families that came out today to share their stories. Women who shared incredibly tragic, difficult stories who essentially relived their trauma in order to bring the point across that collaborating with ICE in any forum is bad policy for our city. So I just want to highlight that lots of the advocacy work that Carison does is not funded. We've chosen to make it this way because we don't want to have our hands or our mouth tied to any type of funding source. So uh, we rely heavily on the community support to advance a lot of our transnational work, including bringing Aspida Arcoiris from El Salvador to San Francisco. And so we want to encourage everyone in the community to, to make a donation to Carison. Even better yet, come to our celebration. We have a lot to celebrate this week. We're really connecting communities and peoples across borders. Carecen's committed to bringing people from the region to speak on their own behalf. We're going to be also honoring at our annual celebration, Romero Vive, this Thursday, October 22nd from 6 to 9 at the San Francisco War Memorial Green Room. We're going to be recognizing the work of Hilary Ronan, who supervises David Campos' chief of staff. She worked very hard last year to help secure a supplemental that funded 10 new immigration attorneys to defend the children who were impacted by last year's Central American crisis in San Francisco's immigration court. So while the struggle continues, we have lots to celebrate, and we're coming together this Thursday to do so. And, of course, celebrating the hard work of everyone in Carecen's team, an incredibly dedicated team. I cannot uh, be thankful enough to everyone in the team. So shout out to Carecen family. Thank you guys for all your work. So come and celebrate with us. And if you cannot be there this Thursday, October 22nd, 6 to 9, at the SF War Memorial, visit us online at carecensf.org. And you can make a donation, you can sign on to our blog, or you can find out more about the services that we offer to the community. That's the voice of Larissa Dugan-Quadra. She's the executive director of Carecen, the Central American Resource Center. Thank you so much, Larissa. We look forward to getting more updates from you. Thank you so much, Julieta, and thank you to all the Bay Area listeners who support our work and who stand up to defend the rights of immigrants, of juveniles, and who are working to advance health for our communities. Él dice el piruca, él dice borracho, nadie lo saluda cuando anda bien remangado. Van arriando chancho, pegando papeleta, capineando el día con el sol en la mollera. Su casa en la calle, su cama en la cuneta, siempre van alegres jodiendo en la perra. Nadie los saluda cuando andan bien remangados Van garriando chancho, pegando papeletas 
to La Raza Chronicles, my name is Brenda Yescas, and this is a listing of arte, cultura, and music here in the Bay Area for the upcoming week. The Other Barrio, a film about displacement in the mission starring culture clashes Richard Montoya at the Brava Theater, this Thursday, October 22nd at 7.30 p.m. For more information, go to brava.org. Carecen's annual Monsignor Romero Vive fundraiser this Thursday, October 22nd, from 6 to 9 p.m. at the SF War Memorial. For more information, carecensf.org. That's C-A-R-E-C-E-N-S-F.org. The Latin Rhythm Boys featuring René Escobedo at Yoshi's in Oakland, Saturday, October 24th at 9.30 p.m. Yoshi's.com for more information. La Gente in Candelaria will be playing at the Brick and Mortar in San Francisco, Saturday, October 24th at 9 p.m. Brickandmortarmusic.com for more information on that show. From the East Bay with Love, book release in Arte by Chamuco Cortez at Amor Eterno Arte, Saturday, October 24th at 6 p.m. For more information, go to amoreternoarte.com. Catch the Oakland premiere of Ghost Town to Havana about inner city coaches in the Bay Area, playing at the Grand Lake Theater on Tuesday, October 27th at 6 p.m. GhostTownToHavana.com And that wraps up the week's calendar. If you miss any of these events, go to our Facebook page, Facebook slash La Raza Chronicles. And if you have any events to add to the list, email LaRazaChronicles at KPFA.org. That's La Raza Chronicles at KPFA.org.
Muchas gracias por estar con nosotros. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles on KPFA Radio. To stay up on our news and calendar and listening of local events, like us on Facebook. That's La Raza Chronicles on Facebook.com. We also invite everyone to check out our archives at soundcloud.org slash La Raza Chronicles. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches. Thank you.